Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Grief fundamentally changes who we are and how we see the world. It's painful and heartbreaking, but also transformative and magical. This podcast is about grief and loss, but more importantly, it's about life and living fearlessly. I'm Kelsey Chittick, and welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Grieve. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. I have someone on today that I feel like has become a friend, even though we've only talked once. But I'm excited because Jenny Lisk is here today, and let me just tell you a little bit about her. She is an award-winning author, a widowed mom, and is dedicated to helping widowed parents. She's the author of Future Widow, where she provides a real-life guide for surviving and thriving while raising grieving children. And just so you know, I I wanted a book like that, and I'm so glad to know there is some. Everybody should buy it, not prophylactically, is that the right word? Go buy it even if your husband's alive. Because if it is, uh, if, it, if, it, if something goes wrong, you'll have the book. Um, <laughs> and she's also the host of the Widowed Parent podcast, which I was on a couple months ago. And that just is a great podcast that brings a bunch of much needed resources to parents that just help you kind of figure out what the hell you're doing the first days, weeks, months, and, you know, a couple years of losing somebody. So thank you, Jenny, for joining Thank you, Kelsey. I've been looking forward to this. And like you said, we talked recently for, for my show. So it's nice to turn the microphone around and, and uh, come on your show this time. Yeah. And I, you know, we kind of, we have very different situations, but we have similar age kids in terms of kind of what it's like to parent right now and what we went through. And so can you just give us a little background on your experience, the loss of your husband, the timing? Because I always like to get that out because it's so different the first three months, three years five years. And so let people sure. know where you are. Yeah. Well, in terms of timing, um, uh, seven years ago, right now, we were in the middle of his eight months of terminal illness. He had brain cancer. So glioblastoma is a very aggressive form of brain cancer. Right. And it started, he was a little bit dizzy and then it just kind of spiraled. And it was pretty quickly, I figured out that it was terminal. Right. I mean, it has a very low single digit survival rate. And so the kids, uh, when he died, were nine and 11 and I was 43, he was 44, and that was in January of 2016. So we're approaching seven years on that. And my kids now are 18 and 16. 
Yeah, so we're, um, I'm a year ahead behind you, and my kids were nine and 12. So I remembered mm-hmm. that we did have a lot in common. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting because we were at the, we were at this really interesting age with our kids where there's magical thinking on the side of the nine-year-old still. Like mm-hmm. they understand death, but they're still kind of holding on to Santa or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever mythical thing we've made up. But the 12-year-old is really at a point of kind of, it was that your daughter or your son that was 12? My son's the older one. And it's, you know, it's interesting. And I didn't realize this until I started talking to people, but it's that the puberty brain upgrades, right? So you think of puberty as like the body upgrades, right? But it's the brain upgrades. And so the the understanding of grief, you know, to your point, the the way kids can think about it and process it and stuff takes a huge shift between that, you know, nine and 13, you know, when, whenever puberty starts, it shifts massively. Yeah. And I also find it interesting that in most, uh, like, indigenous tribes or tribal communities, 12 and 13 is normally when they send the boy out. You know, they have mm-hmm. to go do like three days and kill a boar and come home to the village. Or in Africa, there's a lot of rituals around your 12th or 13th birthday that you now need to provide or you need to be, you're, you're stepping into manhood. And mm-hmm. I, I find that when I, as I kind of now, so I'm five years out, you're seven years out, or five or six, you know, the difference is between my children and their their grief strategy and their healing is so different because I feel like my son was more equipped for these big existential experiences and my daughter's still confused. Mm. And your son's the older one? My son's the older one. And mm-hmm. she's not confused. She just didn't have, like you said, she didn't have the upgrade yet. So at the time it happened, she didn't have the context of what in God's name just took place. Mm. But it's interesting. So in terms of writing your book and we talk about this. And the only thing I read after Nate died was, I'm sure you've seen it. It's that little book that says healing after loss. And it's a daily, it's like one of the best little hmm. books. And it just every day gives I've seen that one. Oh my God, I'll send you it. Not okay. to, but I hope you never have to use it, but I'll send it to you. <laughs> but it's just one little quote every day that just makes you go like, maybe I'll survive this. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you wrote your book, is it, I mean, was the idea that that it was for early grief for people that had just gone through it and you had had the experience of being like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, so I'm going to write the book. And I'm sorry I haven't had a chance to read it because I know you were on Moms Don't Have Time to Read and all of that, but I kind of took a break from grief books because I needed, I felt like I was in it so much, I needed a break from it, but I I look forward to reading it. But what was the impetus? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When my husband was sick, I had a Caring Bridge journal. So for people who aren't familiar with Caring Bridge, it's like an online blog. You can create a free site, essentially, where you can keep your friends and your family followers kind of updated on whatever's happening, right? So I was posting, and in the beginning, it was kind of more matter of fact, right? I'm updating people. He's having surgery. Maybe he's coming home, right? And as I went, it got more and more reflective, kind of trying to share... Well, I was processing in real time, right? Some of that anticipatory grief stuff, another word I didn't know back back then. And so I was sharing with the people who were following us and helping us. I had a lot of support, right? And I, and I wanted to kind of share what was going on. So by the time I was done with eight months worth of blog posts, I had 15,000 words. And people were telling me, oh, you should write a book. And I'm like, well, okay, 15,000 words feels like the start of a book. Right. And this is documenting a journey in real time of a family, a young family where the dad is terminally ill. Right. I feel like there's some value maybe in providing a window into that journey, but it doesn't feel like a book yet. Like, how do I make it into an actual 
book. And so by then I had started the podcast and I had been learning all these things from grief experts and other widowed parents and all these people. And so, and then I started realizing, you know, if I had known, you know, how important it was to be honest with kids, how important it was to, you know, not shy away from some of the difficult conversations. If I had known some of these things that I was learning then after the fact, back when Dennis was sick and in the first period after he died, that would have been really helpful. And so I gradually kind of realized, oh, there's the book, like share what was happening and weave in, like going back, like, okay, here's the blog post from, you know, this day. And now behind the scenes, maybe here's some more of what was going on that I didn't say then. And also here's, you know, what I, if I had known this or this, maybe things would have gone differently. And I want to help people who are in the similar situation, whether they're, you know, it's pre-loss or post-loss, either way, the same kind of principles of, you know, about parenting, grieving kids apply. And so I, I, wanted to start sharing that. And I actually, you know, I had planned, I thought my first book would be the widowed parent handbook. Mm -hmm. And I realized that needs a lot more work to get that out there. It's more, it's more of a nonfiction, you know, research, like packet full of valuable information, which is different than writing a memoir. And so I decided to tackle the memoir first and get my story out there, but, but to start weaving in some helpful things, not to wait for that next book, you know? Yeah. I think that's it's it's interesting because we talk about this a lot, but the the parts about death, we all kind of can understand what it would feel like emotionally to lose somebody or the fear or the sadness. But the logistics of death are one of the things that I think most most and I, I talk to more women than I do men, but most women are like, wait, what? Like that I, you know, the morgue, the coroners, hmm. the memorial, like these are things that at life insurance. I would just had someone on last week and I just talked about God, I'd like to do a PSA for people just to have life insurance. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I feel like that's like an under discussed thing because nobody wants to talk about money, but I'm just telling everybody money is one of the predictors of how well you will make it through grief. Mm. Because without resources, you can't stay home with your kids. You can't, and, and most women don't. So I'm always like, the minute you get married in your 20s or 30s, before you even think about having a child, when you're super healthy, go Mm -hmm. get life insurance for both of you. And if you lock it in when you're in your 20s or exactly. 30s, the price is lower. This right? is you what can, I'm telling people. This is going to yeah. be, this is my new movement, which is you can do a lot of things if you can pay your bills and you don't have to worry about your kids eating or having a roof over their head. So that's another thing. But I do, on some level, I would love, maybe we'll work together on that, but there has we to should. be a PSA for life insurance. It's $20 a month. I mean, we spend, you can't go out with a family of four for less than $80 for yeah. dinner. Yeah. And when you're 23 and they don't, and the insurance company doesn't think you're going to die, that's when you get a, a $4 million Jeez. policy for $70 yeah. or something. Yeah. And yeah. man, I wish I had a lot more than I had. Well, yeah. I, I went back and I actually found the insurance agent that pushed us to get it. It's interesting. We were living in Portland, Oregon at the time. And um, my husband had just joined this thing and they had a life insurance, you know, agent as part of it. And he was like, you guys need life insurance. And we're like, eh, you know, and oh, do we really need it? You know, but at that point, our kids were really small and he was trying to sell us, uh, what do they call it? Whole life insurance. Like where it was going to be like hundreds of dollars a month. Right. You're like, but you, right. And then, but then like, eventually you get some of it back and all these things. And I had been doing some reading about term life insurance 
And basically the guy was like, look, I don't care if you buy it from me or not. I don't care if you buy whole life or term life. If you can't afford whole life, you know, I think it's great. But if you can't afford it, that's fine, is what he said. He's like, just buy something. If something happens, you want to be protected. And so I didn't buy from him. I went out and like found some online, you know, and it was like $17, $25 a month, something like that, right, for each of us, and bought it. And yeah. if this guy hadn't pushed us to do it, it would have been one of those things that I would have said, well, maybe, yeah. you know, between the, the extra expense, small as it is, but also just the inertia of just not making a decision. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's just, it's like kind of a hidden thing that we don't talk about. You know, this isn't about, I'm going to go around the topics because I, I've been having this thought lately and since you and I have talked before and we we could talk about the book, but we understand you know, we understand what the book does. So I, I highly suggest anybody that's in the early stages or a couple of first years out, having somebody kind of write down what happened to them to feel like you're seen and heard is the biggest part about grief books. That, yeah. That they that you are not alone and that, that there's someone that can guide you. So Right. Well, I, I'm sorry, just can I add to that? Sure. I know your your podcast is part of Zibby Owen's group. And I heard her on an interview talk about one of the things she likes so much about memoir. She said it's like sitting down for a friend with a friend for coffee and that friend is going through something, you know, worse than you are and you're kind of learning from them. And I thought that was a really powerful analogy. Yeah, and I love that. I think too the the thing the best part about what I wrote which was definitely a memoir, definitely from my journals is just that when people write like I finally found someone that was feeling the way I do. I think grief is hmm. so lonely and you actually think your world is over and you think that like you'll never be okay again. And then when you read a book that shows somebody is, you know, has been through exactly what you, what you've been through at a different phase, there's so much hope in that. And yeah, so l- let's talk a little bit about death though because I'm so I'm at 5 I'll be 5 years of losing Nate on 11/11, which as mm. everybody that knows me, I'm psychotic about signs and mysticism and so I will always cherish that my husband left me the best sign when he died on 11/11 at 11. And I just am like, you piece of shit, look at you, just making it so obvious for me. And I and I love that because he knew signs really mattered to me. And actually this morning I went outside and there was, it, it's been pouring rain in LA. It hasn't rained in like 52 years here. <laughs> and there was a huge hawk on our basketball net, just looking over the entire basketball court. And I was thinking to myself, like if we pay attention, there's so many beautiful things in this journey of grief, this this connection to something bigger, to something mystical. So when you think about your husband, I have this question that I've been thinking about. Do do all these people, like your husband was fine and then he wasn't. My mm-hmm. husband was alive and then he wasn't. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on just, what what is, is, is there a shelf life for every soul? Do people go when they need to go? Do they, is it sickness? Is it, is it meant to be? Was there a way around it? Like, how do you couch your husband's leaving early, you with two kids? I'm kind of very interested in that right now because I, as I talk to widows all the time, the choice on how you decide to tell the story to yourself really matters in how you will live the rest of your life. Mm. You know, if you feel like you got screwed, then you feel kind of like a victim your whole life. If you find that you have gifts out of it. So where do you stand on that experience for you? Yeah, that's interesting. And I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that. So, so going in a different direction. I know, right? You know, I I guess I come down like 
I can't reconcile why he died. And so therefore, I don't need to try. Like, I would just make myself crazy trying to figure out why. Right? Like, we don't know why he got glioblastoma. It's one of these things that nobody seems to know exactly what causes it, who's more susceptible to it, if that's even a thing. Like, there's so many unknowns. Now, there's some good research going on, and they're starting to find some virus connections. But, you know, I like, it's weird. And so I feel like, for me, I would make myself crazy trying to, if I was looking for, like, why, 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 right? Right. And to me, like, because that wouldn't change the underlying facts. He died on January 8th of 2016. And if I figured out why he got glioblastoma or didn't or whatever, like, it wouldn't make anything different about that. And I guess I... You know, I think it's important for me to think about you know, he got kind of half of a life, right? So he got 44 years. So is that half? I don't know. Maybe, right? Sure. And that was tragic, right? For him, for me, for my kids, for other people. And I feel like if I kind of like half-ass the rest of my life, that's kind of going to like compound the tragedy, right? Like there's, he died and I didn't. And do I wish I couldn't do that? Yes. Do I wish I had a magic wand? Yes. Do I have a magic wand? No. Right? If I have fast things from here on out, that's not going to bring him back. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So would you say that his death changed your entire way of looking at life? Oh, yeah. You know, I was I was 20 years in corporate IT before. Jeez. I yeah. Really, you really made a 180. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Now I'm an author and a podcaster. and yeah. a, you're, all, actually, you're all touchy-feely. 
I know, right? Although, uh, although your book and your process of how you walk through grief and even what you just said mm. is very corporate IT in terms of logical. If I knew yeah. what the problem was with the with the system, I would fix it. But if I don't know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to make up a solution about the system that I don't that I've looked through everything. Yeah. There is no answer, so we're going to move on. Yeah, exactly. And I am I am all feeling, all emotion. I have to have I have to make up a story or I can't mm. I can't I, I I have to find meaning that is not true or not true or false. It just has to be true to me. And yeah. I will then believe it because until I have some type of structure around what happened, I can't stop looping on it. Right. Well, and I think the important point in all of this is twofold. First of all, you know, there's no right way or wrong exactly. way to approach this. You've seen two very different examples here, the way you're approaching it, the way I'm approaching it. And the other part of that though, is I think there is, there's a right way for me and a right way for you. So if I was trying to do it your way, I probably you'd, you'd, you'd go insane, right? And if you were trying safe. to do it, yeah. And if you were trying to do it my way, like that'd be horrible, right? Yep. So I, it's but it's an interesting, it's a very interesting thing. Like I think before you get involved in grief stuff, whatever that means, you know, or you're grieving yourself, and so you think you kind of think, well, there must be a right way to do this, and if I do it the right way, then you know, if I'll, at the end I'll be fine, right? And and so I think it's important to realize that there isn't, and yet some things very well might be very helpful to you and not helpful to somebody else or vice versa. So it's interesting. And that's another reason why memoir and listening to podcasts and hearing people share their stories and their different takes on things, right? Because then you can try on ideas. Oh, what that person's saying resonates, what that person's saying doesn't. This piece of what this person's saying resonates, but not the other piece. And then that can, I think, help people kind of filter through what might be helpful to them. Well, that's why I like talking to you because I do feel like we come from different spots. And I actually think that you're a little bit more like my daughter. And Mm. so my touchy-feely, spiritual, mystical, the hawk landed on my, and it was Nate talking to me. She's like, make it stop. Like, make this disaster of you stop. And I've had to be real careful because even on the podcast or when I talk to widows, I have for the last five years, until I've just started thinking about this more as I have a little more space, I've assumed that you kind of need to do it the way I do it. If you Mm. want to, you have to, you have to find meaning, you have to do this. And watching my kids and now talking to more people like you, there is another way to do it, which is mind blowing to me that my way isn't the right way and very offensive, (laughs) I've decided. But you know, my daughter doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to make up stories of birds and hummingbirds and, Mm. you know, the 1111. My mom's like, I mean, my, my mom, my my mom is very mystical. She's crazy. But my daughter's very like, it happened. There, we, mm. we could sit around here and talk about it and worry about it, but that doesn't work. And she doesn't like to speak about it. She doesn't want to talk about him. Nate is so much part of my day-to-day life that she's like, does it always have to be about the dead dad? Mm. And um, so it's just interesting as we kind of figure out and why I love your book is because it is practical. Mm. And it's, you know, Practical people need practical things. I needed some story about how, you know, an eagle swooped down and took Nate because it was time for him to go fight fires in heaven. Uh, and that's what worked for me. But let's talk about your kids for a little bit because I think shepherding kids as a mother when they lose their father is, I think it's probably very different than shepherding kids who, who have lost a mother. I think that's a very, I think it's very unique which parent they lost. 
um, the age of the kids, but you talk a little bit about being honest and you brought that up. And I, I think that's so important. And I, I actually am having a conversation about suicide and complicated grief. And mm-hmm. there's always this debate about what do we tell kids and what don't we? So mm-hmm. what from your professional opinion and going through it, because I have things I would look back and go, and I would change. I would be like, why did you force them to talk? And what are some of the things that really helped you with your kids that you share that really resonates with people nowadays for you? You know, let's tackle this last thing you said here about the issue of suicide and being honest or not, or what to tell kids about suicide. It's actually, and every children's grief expert will tell you, it is important to be honest with them. And it is actually quite common, especially with suicide, homicide, drug overdose, that parents will, meaning well, wanting to protect their kids, make up kind of a cover story. And they'll they'll tell the kids that something that seems less hard happened, like a heart attack or something like that. And they think that that is protecting, maybe they're too young or the discussion is going to be too difficult. And it's interesting because kids will eventually find out. Either maybe you decide to tell them at some point eventually, or uh, they Google it and they read something if something was in the news. Or they overhear it from another kid at school because chances are, you know, if somebody died by suicide, there are other people, lots of other people around the kid who know. And it might just be the kid who doesn't know. And they might also like, you know, they hear adults like start talking in hushed voices when they come in the room and they can just sense that something's off, even if they can't. That's what I was going to say too. Like, I don't underestimate the intuition of children. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I get back to the kind of the feely part. Like, don't think just because you say something they don't in their gut know you're lying. Right. Because well, that's and- a spiritual experience. When someone takes their life, there is a aura around that and around the adults that are tending to them that is different than if they died of a heart attack. Right. And what what ends up happening, so eventually the kid figures out or you tell them or somebody tells them or whatever. And two things happen. It it, it that bond of trust between the surviving parent and the kid is damaged in some way, but maybe a little, maybe a lot. Maybe the kid is completely devastated and unmoored because everything they've been told about their other parent is, you know, or or at least this big thing is untrue. And so they're like, well, what else is untrue? What else haven't I been told? Right. And so the bond of trust between the surviving parent and the kid is super important for its own sake. So the kid can have a loving, supportive relationship. And as a pattern for future intimate trusting relationships that the kid may form over their lifetime, whether it's with partners or friends or, you know, anybody that they might want to have a close emotional relationship with. If that bond of trust with the surviving parent is damaged, it it becomes a pattern that becomes difficult to make those trusting relationships later. And so it turns out it's really important to tell them the truth. And also if it's not too late to go back and fix it, right? Like if, I talked to a, um, I interviewed a parent recently who her husband died of suicide. Her daughter was like six, maybe. And she initially told her it was a heart attack. And the mom went to the first grief group. And she, when they went around the circle, the mom said it, to the other adults, it was a heart attack because she wasn't ready to, right? But then, and I think she was like towards the beginning of the circle. And by the time it got around the circle, some other people had expressed that their spouses had died by suicide. And so, and the mother realized that she needed to fix this. And I think the next time she went back to the grief group, she told the grief group the truth. And then she's like, help, how do I tell my kid? And she ended up looping back 
and telling the kid and the kid was distraught, but they were able to talk through it. And it's a good example of modeling of like, Hey, I was doing what I thought was right. I know more now. And I want to talk to you about something important, right? And and figure out how to kind of go back and have that conversation now. It's not it's not too late. Yeah, I think we all, if if you have if you've had any time with grief or you've lost a partner and you're shepherding your kids, all of us have moments where we're like, that was the wrong move. And I did that so often. Yeah. Well, here's an example. When Dennis was sick, he was confused. And so there were very limited things we could do, right? There was no bucket list kind of stuff. It was like we could watch TV. We could kind of sort of play very simple card games or board games when we couldn't really, but we could kind of pass some time that way. So one day we were playing Sorry, the kids game, Sorry, right? Board game. Perfect name. Yeah, right? And so, you know, Megan was eight or nine. I don't know if it was before or after her birthday, but she was eight or nine. She's coaching him through how to play the game because he was, his brain cancer was affecting him so badly cognitively that he was too confused to know how to play sorry. So she was coaching him the way you, you, an adult, a parent would coach a little kid the first time you teach him this board game, right? Oh, dad, do you want to move your piece here? Do you want me to move it for you? You got to move five. Where do you want to go? Right. And so we play this game and I, you know, it went fine. Now, listeners can't see I'm using air quotes, right? It was fine in that, you know, nobody cried. There's nothing unpleasant. It was a pleasant enough way to pass half an hour, an hour's time or whatever in, in a time when we had like nothing to do, right? So we played this board game. And at the end, I think I was so relieved that it seemed like it was okay. Then I'm like, all right, move on. Next thing. I got medicines to give and I got to figure out this and that. Maybe we have to call the doctor and whatever, right? Well, what I wish I had done was loop back with her, maybe at bedtime, and say, hey, that, that game was sorry today. That was kind of weird. How was that for you? And open the door on the emotional aspect, right? And see if she would have been willing to share something. And if she had been willing to talk, then my role is to listen and just witness, right? How is this for her? Or if she didn't want to talk, if she'd said, yeah, it was fine, or yeah, it was weird, but I don't want to talk about it. Okay, that's fine too, because I'm sending the message that the door is open to these conversations. So you don't want to talk now, that's fine. Maybe you something weird, you want to talk tomorrow or next week or next month, right? And I think it's important for the parents, the parent to send the message that the, that the door is open. So I didn't have that discussion. And I wish that I had, because that starting some of those, like listening on the emotions sooner would have been helpful. And so yeah. I went, but I yeah, went back like this year, yeah. right? Like a few months ago. And I was like, hey, Megan, I was thinking about that time we played Sorry seven years ago when dad was sick and we had the conversation just this year and she she remembered it and yeah. she's like, yeah, that was weird. And so again, it's not too late to go back, right? And try to have those conversations any anytime. Yeah, no, I, you know, that's, I've said I'm sorry so often to my kids be, and I've also been like, I was a badass too. So for every awful thing I did, mm-hmm. remember when I let you say fuck and shit and throw and break, <laughs> break, you know. I love that story plates. in your book. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like you, I, I, I let you guys were little and I let you say whatever you wanted for 20 minutes and it was so freeing. And so there was, you know, there's times that you, you hit it right and your gut knows that you, you nailed it. And there's times that, I mean, for, for me at least, and I think for a lot of people that are in early grief, 
you're so depleted and you're it's it's very hard to navigate a home when you are on a planet that you don't even know existed. Mm. And it you know that's what grief kind of does to you. All the rules go out the window, all your security, all your your north pole. It's like you don't know where you are, what sides up. So you make a lot of mistakes. But I will say as the kids get older, I love that you said you went back. Like I go back now all the time, like, sorry about that. I mean, for me also dating, I I haven't done a podcast about that, but we need an expert for that because that was a shit show for me. Oh yeah. Well, it just, you know, it, it was hard. It was hard. And I was, I needed someone to, it was so sudden for me and I was so scared. I needed and, and physical touch is my language of love. So I really just needed a hug. I remember mm. feeling very like almost I was in solitary confinement. And so I ended up dating somebody who I had known back in college and it was too soon for the kids. It was too, and, and I was desperate to, it, it was a whole hot mess. Wonderful guy. The kids now are everybody's friends, but man, I, I think those are some of the things that we have to navigate that are just, they're just hard. And mm-hmm. having you know, other women that can walk you through it or that say like, don't try that or that's not right. Um, I I, ca- I apologize a lot for that, for trying to, even though I knew better, trying to be like, we're all going to be fine. You can, you have to like him. And they're like, we hate him. Like we <sighs> despise him. And it wasn't him. They despised that their father was dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's so many, there's so many moments in that. So when you, when you look back, what are you most proud of that you did that you just intuitively knew? Ooh, that's a good one. Keep you know, coming up with good ones. Good I ones. know. I'm giving you ones you've never gotten, and you do this I, for a living. I know. I, you know, I think part of the problem was that I didn't intuitively know a lot of this stuff. Right? Like I, like I said, I was an IT person. I was not, you know, a child development expert. I was not a grief expert. I didn't have even like a degree in psychology or something. I did take one psych 101 class at one point somewhere along the way, but we didn't talk about any of this stuff. Right. And, and I felt like, you know, uh, what do I do here? And then some of these things, like, for example, on the question of being honest, that feels like a real stark choice. Like if and now my husband didn't die by suicide, but let's say he had died by suicide. It feels like you either tell him it was suicide or you don't tell him it was suicide. And that feels like there's no like straddling that. And you feel like one or the other of those is going to be a terrible approach, but you don't know which, right? And so even like like uh, Dennis at the beginning, he had a brain tumor. We didn't know what type of tumor. So some tumors are fixable, right? We didn't know if it was the type that was fixable or not fixable. Well, when we found out that it was glioblastoma and not fixable, I didn't know if I should tell the kids that or not or when or how, right? Any of that stuff. And my my friend called me up and she said, because I had posted on CaringBridge that we'd gotten the diagnosis back and it was glioblastoma. She called me up and she said, when are you going to tell the kids? And I thought that, I think she could tell that I was wanting to say like, um, never. Yeah, yeah. I have an idea. We're not. (laughs) Right, right. And so I choose no. I yeah, no. <laughs> exactly. And so she's like, okay, here's the thing. She said, our kids asked us tonight at dinner yeah. if Dennis was going to die and we didn't want to lie to them. And we told them we didn't know when, but yes, that he would. And the doctors weren't going to be able to fix it. And so she said, there's conversations like that happening at dinner tables all around our school community tonight. And you don't want your kids to hear about this tomorrow on the playground from the other kids. they need to hear it from you and they need to hear it tonight. And I'm like, oh, 
okay, you're right. I hate this. I hate this, but you're like, right. I, I like, like, I'm going to beat up the kids that say that to my kids. They need to keep, <laughs> keep our secrets for God's sake. What type of neighbors do we have? <laughs> yeah. But you know, the kids were little, they were in but second and it. second yeah. and fifth grades at the it's tail end of second and fifth grade yeah. when this was happening, when he got sick. And, and so that kind of thing where I felt like you know, now I, I'm the recipient of this news from the doctor of what the diagnosis is and what the outlook is, and it's bad. And do I or don't I tell the kids? I didn't I didn't have any intuition on that. My intuition was one approach is going to be wrong, and I don't know which, well, and, uh, and freeze, right? Well, I'll challenge your thought on it, which I okay. think that you're, that you didn't have intuition, but you had an angel mm. that showed up on that phone call by giving you the words that you needed and mm-hmm. the understanding and the the idea of what, what you would do. Because without that conversation, you didn't know which way to go. Right. But somehow that evening, a dear friend that was quite courageous to say the hard thing to you, which was, mm. let me tell you what we just said about your husband right. at our dinner table. Right. And she actually gave you the words. So it wasn't right. intuition, but it was this guided experience. Yeah. And I was lucky to have a lot of supporters, both of the people bringing food and doing the rides and the soccer practices, but also people like that friend, people like another friend who said, you know, you need to get him to write cards to your kids, like a series of cards and one for when they turn a 16 and one for when they get married and one for, you know, and all these things. And I'm like, I hate that idea. I hate it. I hate it. But you are probably right. You know, I should probably do that, but really, come on! Like, do I, seems a little, seems a little sad and deathy. To yeah, have that. That sounds like a very depressing thing. Yeah, yeah. but st- stuff like that. And then I had another friend yeah. actually in the neighborhood whose husband had died of the same brain cancer five years previous in the same neighborhood. That's alarming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she was able to, you know, listen first of all. And then share some things based on her perspective and experience and being five years out and having multiple kids at different ages. So yeah. Are you two still in touch? Oh yeah. In fact, we just, we have our little widows group and we just got together last week at somebody's house for dinner and hanging out and catching up. And Nothing says fun like having a dead spouse on a a Friday night. It's the best, it's the best. I mean, my, my most favorite people, I say this all the time, are people with dead people Mm -hmm. because you can say the things that they Mm -hmm. get, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. And we, you know, we need to get together more regularly, but the pandemic has kind of, yeah. kind of changed things up, but you know, it's a great group and there's different types of loss. Mm-hmm. Um, we all had kids in like grade school or high school when our spouses died and now all the kids have gotten respectively older. Right. And there's, mm-hmm. um, you know, mix of cancer, suicide, heart attack, <laughs> Uh, you know, all the fun stuff. It's the worst, it's the worst <laughs> invitation I've ever heard of. I know. Join I know. us. That's so right, funny. Right. But well, you know what? We had a great time. And well, we, you laugh. And, I went and over it, there at six o'clock and I don't think I was home until 10 o'clock and it was a Thursday night. Because they get it. No, it's yeah. great. And I, yeah. we need to talk more because I, I have more questions because I do love your perspective and mine because there's a there's an evenness to your approach and the way you talk about it. And there's information mm. that's really important. I, I lean so far the other direction to like some mystical sign from, you know, something. But I I love that. I love that your book has a practical way of looking through it because there's a lot of practicality in death. Yeah, It's very much like a birth. You need to know where you're going. You need to know where the doctor's office is. You need to know what's next. You need to know how to bring the baby home. You need someone to tell you what the hell just happened. (laughs) And so if, if you guys need a book, if you're early in grief, future widow, 
is a fabulous resource. And um, Jenny and I are going to keep talking. Absolutely. I appreciate you doing this work. It's, you, you do good work around this all the time. And um, I'm glad you joined us. Well, thank you. And you're having great conversations on your show, exploring lots of things that we don't even get into on my show. So I think it's great to have, you know, people can listen to different podcasts for different reasons or different moods, whatever strikes them, whatever they're looking for that day. So thank you for for doing this and for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep going. It gets better.